about that. There you go. I flipped the switch and it worked. Okay, great. Uh, well, good morning and welcome everyone. I want to go ahead and begin our time with a word of prayer this morning as we jump in. So let's pray together. God, thank you for our time together today. Thank you that we can gather as your people, as your church, those who have been bought by the blood of your son. Thank you that we can access uh, you through prayer because of what he has done. Thank you that we have our sins forgiven and we can walk before you in confidence that we can have a, a conscience that is purified and that is that is clear having been washed by Christ and we thank you that we can come to you knowing that we're not coming for our performance to earn our way to you but that we can come with the confidence of a God who has drawn us near to himself and God we pray that you would help us to understand and to think rightly this morning about how we are to respond in the world and in these certain areas of government culture society uh, the things that we uh, see all around us every day help us to have wisdom in applying the truths of Scripture to this situation, uh, to the situations we find ourselves in. And we pray that you would help us to honor and please you from the attitude that we do this with. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue our section, our study on the uh, on government and the Christian life. Government and the Christian life. Uh, this morning, what we want to do is to talk about how our theology impacts our engagement in the world and in particular with uh, with respect to the realm of government and uh, maybe a little bit of culture society kinds of things thrown in um, theology drives everything theology really is at the root of all that we do uh, it informs and governs all that we say all that we think what we do and what we say and what we think flows out of what we believe and of course this is true in all areas um, if we have a certain response to things that make us fearful that shows what we believe about God if we have a certain response to actions that we see that we think are right or wrong that shows what we think about God it reflects our theology uh, and this is true in every area of life and it is of course true as well with respect to the way that we view our involvement in politics, government, culture, and so on. Now, uh, there are a number of ways where this shows up. Uh, some of these are, for example, the place of conversion, uh, the nature of conversion. What is the importance of conversion? And what does it take for someone to become a Christian? Does someone simply have to adopt Christian practices and that makes them a Christian? Or does someone have to be born again? And that's what makes them a Christian. This is going to impact the way that we interact with the world and the way that we try to get them to do things. Um, what is the importance of doing social good relative to gospel proclamation? What we believe about that is going to impact the way that we spend our time and our efforts. Uh, but there is one area that maybe impacts a lot of uh, disagreement and a lot of activity concerning the government and our involvement with the government, one area of theology that has uh, maybe a special bearing on this and that is influenced in large part by what we think about this area, and that is the area of eschatology, of eschatology. Uh, so what, when we say eschatology, what comes into your mind? We talk about eschatology. What do you think? First thought. End times. End times. Yes. What else? Anything else come to mind when you when you think about that? That you pick what's that? Premillennialism. Pre okay. Okay. I like that answer. What else? 
Okay, maybe you think about timelines, maybe you think about uh, graphs and charts and so on. Um, maybe you think about things that are scary or comforting. Uh, maybe you think this is a controversial subject, and in some ways it is. But eschatology, if we are going to define it, is simply the doctrine of last things. Last things. Eschaton is uh, from the idea of the end. It's, uh, it's the Greek word that refers to the end or last things. So eschatology comes from that idea. And of course, eschatology not only speaks about what will happen in the future, but, and especially depending upon your view, it refers to really the whole course and plan of history. What is God doing in the world? Uh, what will he do in the future? And if you think that he will or won't do something in the future, that means that he may or may not have already done that thing, or he may be doing that thing now. So eschatology refers to uh, what is still to come in the future, but it has bearing upon what is taking place even in the present time. Now, um, we, there are several different, well, there are many, many different es uh, eschatological views, and in a moment I want to just walk you through uh, four of the probably the most prominent ones in the circles that you might run in and to kind of think about those. But uh, I do want to just note up front that uh, eschatology, your view of the last things and when things are going to happen or whether they are happening or what, you, uh, what is the place of the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ and so on. Um, these are not necessarily determinative of the way that you interact with government and society and culture. In other words, there are some people who may have different views on these things, but who basically function the same way. And there are people who have aligned views on these things, like they might be a premillennialist or a postmillennialist, but they act differently and they think differently about engaging in government and culture and society uh, than one another, even though they believe the same thing theologically. So they're not determinative. This isn't like, if I believe this thing, then I will practice things exactly in this way. But they are probably going to push you in a certain direction. There, there is a general correlation among them. And um, sometimes this is the case where you know this and you're aware of it. And you say, because I hold to this eschatology, therefore I am acting this way toward the world around me. And then other times it's not really very conscious. You just do it because you believe this and you kind of assume and it flows out of what you believe. Uh, so these do impact people's views. They are not automatically associated with any given set of practices and they're not necessarily consistently exactly all the time followed by people who hold to the same view and they're not different among people who hold different views uh, necessarily, but they do push in a general direction. So let me just give you, um, and I hope that you can see the uh, chart up on the board. Now, what I've done is lay out for you, and um, you can go ahead and start to pick this apart if you want to, but this is, uh, this is a rough sketch of a number of major areas in four areas of, or four versions of what we will call of eschatology, of eschatological views. And I will walk through each one of these. And uh, I, I've tried my best to accurately represent what I understand all of these views to be. If you think that uh, there needs to be some type of uh, modification of that, maybe you hold this view or you've interacted with someone who has a different view, then by all means, uh, feel free to note that and, and let me know that you think that that is actually not correct. I don't want to misrepresent anyone's views, but I'm just trying to represent some of the major viewpoints that are here. And the reason these four are here is because these are, again, as I said a, a moment ago, these are going to be 
the, the, the four main views that I think you're going to interact with or that you might hold as, um, as someone in the modern day who is evangelical and who runs probably in largely what we would call largely a generally reformed kind of circles. So if you have a high view of the sovereignty of God and salvation, you hold the high view of scripture, uh, and you are in a church that uh, a church that is largely evangelical, not necessarily like a, uh, a high church or a, uh, um, uh, something that's maybe a very particular denomination. Like these are going to be the main things that you are seeing out there. So uh, I've listed them across the top. Um, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Now what do you notice about those four names? Yeah, millennial, millennial, millennial. Yeah, why are we talking about the millennials up here? And for those of you who are wondering what this millennial thing is all about, no, this is not the people who are always on their phones and, you know, whatever the stereotype you have of that. Uh, this is not about millennials at all in our current uh, society type of label. The millennial idea here has to do with what? Who can tell me? Where does that come from? A thousand years found in which passage of Scripture? Revelation 20, that's right. Revelation chapter 20 uh, refers to a thousand years. And in fact, I'm, I want to read those first six verses for you just so you see where this is coming from. I don't want to assume that people uh, all know this. So at the, uh, toward the end of the book of Revelation, in verse 20, the first six verses say this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is the passage where the, the idea of the millennium comes from. Um, the concepts that are spoken of here are not exclusive to this passage. Uh, the idea of a reign with Christ and a resurrection and things like this, the judgment of Satan, these are not unique to this passage. They did not originate in this passage. But when it comes to this number, a thousand years, it is spoken of here in this passage for the first and only time with respect to uh, with respect to the subject that it describes. So when we talk about millennial views, uh, what this refers to is the timing of Christ's return with respect to that 1,000 years. So the timing of Christ's return compared to that 1,000 years. I know many of you know this, but just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. So when we talk about pre millennialism what does that mean concerning Christ's return in the thousand years yeah so so Christ returns pre this 1000 years before 
this 1,000 years. And that would be the case for both of these versions of this dispensational and historic premillennialism. So there is a 1,000-year period as described here in, in Revelation 20. And Christ returns before that takes place. Um, so then what would post-millennialism be with respect to that? So just the other end of the spectrum, right? So he returns at, sort of at the end or at the culmination of this time. And then amillennialism, um, although I suppose technically he sort of returns at the end of the millennium. It really refers more to the fact that there is not so much uh, this period of time that's described here but more of an era and as we'll see this has to do with uh, what they would view as basically the here and now is describing this the kingdom the reign of Christ uh, upon the earth through the church at this moment so there's not really a uh, a long period of time necessarily although there has been a couple of thousand years since Christ departed and uh, before the time when he returned so that's where this comes from. And, and of course, the, the awe that's involved there, um, you may know that this alpha primitive, this, this kind of means it's the opposite of something. It just refers to the fact that it is not this, that there is no literal millennium that's being referred to here. So that's where the view comes from. Um, I would wager to guess that not every single uh, amillennialist would love necessarily the, some of the connotations of what that term describes, but the label is the label, and so this is what we call it. So these are, uh, these are views that have to do with the timing of the return of Christ compared to the 1,000 years. Now, sometimes what's connected with this as well is a view about the timing of the rapture of Christ, or the rapture of the church, rather. And so you might hear things like pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, mid-tribulational, pre-wrath, and so on. Um, but that really refers to something that, even though it's connected in some ways with this, of course, because it refers to eschatology, is that's not really a millennial issue per se. And you can have people who hold different views here who might have different views on that as well. Although the debate between pre, post, mid, and so on with regard to the rapture is usually uh, usually confined to premillennial views in terms of having disagreements among them. But that's another discussion for another time. I just want to make sure when you say pre-trib or when you're talking about the millennium, don't say, well, I'm pre-trib or I'm post-trib. That's not really referring to this issue uh, if you're describing millennial differences. So this has to do with when does this 1,000 years take place? And then some other things that have to do with it. Uh, what is the nature of this 1,000 year period. Is this actually a literal time frame of 1,000 years or not? Like if you put it on a calendar, does it start here and last for exactly 1,000 years? Uh, the premillennial view would say yes, that is a literal 1,000 years, although uh, I have I've seemed to see that the uh, historic premillennial view isn't quite as like it has to be exactly 1,000 years. Um, but basically, yes, a thousand years, so a literal 1,000 years. Um, the amillennial view would, uh, would say that no, that is not necessarily the case. It would just be kind of a really long time, um, as would, although from a different perspective, the postmillennial view would say from that this is not exactly a 1,000 year necessary, uh, necessarily time period uh, that takes place that is described here. 
Okay, so those are the views. Now, I just want to make sure you know, because some of you are probably already going, well, how could they say this, or how could they say that? Uh, first of all, we have a view at our church uh, that is officially taught. You do not have to believe this to be a member. We encourage you to uh, be persuaded of the view that is taught, but uh, that view is premillennial with, uh, with a basically dispensational uh, type of perspective because, as you'll see here, it includes a future for the nation of Israel during that literal millennium. But uh, I'm not here so much this morning to try to persuade you of one of these views over the other, but I do want to make sure you understand how they, uh, how they do impact what you believe, and, and I would commend to you uh, premillennialism of a dispensational variety, uh, and I would, I would always, of course, love the chance to persuade you of that, and on occasion we'll try to do that. Um, so for this morning, I do just want to make sure we're going through, we're understanding some of the differences, and you understand why people have these different views, or why people uh, may approach the government differently based upon their eschatology. Um, so when will this millennium then take place? Well, the dispensational and historic premillennialists would say it takes place after the return of Christ. Christ returns, and then you have a thousand years. The amillennialists would say that it is taking place now, between Christ's first and second coming. Uh, and then the postmillennialists would say between Christ's first and second coming, although this may kind of flow into uh, and be culminated in and, and then overflow into, uh, into the future, into the, uh, the eternal state. Um, is there, uh, another question, is there a future distinct national role for Israel as a nation? And the dispensational uh, premillennialists would say, yes, there is. They would say that the promises of the Old Testament uh, still are directly spoken of, that spoke toward national Israel. They still have a reference they always intended to have, and they do have a reference to the nation itself. Uh, that there were people that, would, that were promised to be saved from among the Gentiles, that the nations were always planned to be brought in. But there is more, that there's, there's still more to come for Israel as a nation, and that there will one day be a mass conversion of the nation, and they will have an actual nation state that is a key part of what God does in the future after the return of Christ. Um, historic premillennialists would say that though many um, Israelites or many Jews will likely be converted in the last day, that there's not necessarily a role for them in a distinct nation in the future, that that's not really very important if it even exists at all. Yes, there will be Gentiles, there will be nations, Israel will be there as well, but not really the emphasis on Israel as an entity with Christ reigning over that particular nation as the center point of what's going on in his kingdom in the future. Um, so that would be the more historic premillennial position. Uh, then you have a, uh, uh, the amillennial view, which would say there is no real distinct national role for Israel as a nation, that the promises are basically brought into to the church, that, um, that Israel is the church, that they're kind of one and the same terminology, that Israel represents the church of all the ages, and that in this present time and in the future, that these promises that were given are fulfilled spiritually in Christ, and that what promises do remain that are what we might call physical would be um, fulfilled in the future time after Christ returns in the new heavens and the new earth. And then similarly, um, a fulfillment of those things uh, would not be given for a national Israel in the future under the post-millennial position. 
Okay, the, uh, there's a question of who is the true Israel then? Who is really the true Israel? There are a couple of statements in scripture that affect this or, or that refer to this. Uh, Romans 9 verse 6, they are not all Israel who are Israel. Galatians 6 6 uh, refers to the Israel of God. Um, the dispensational view would say that believing Jews are the true Israel. That it is limited to Jews, but that you have to be a Christian in order to be part of the true Israel. And that that only takes place now as a remnant, but that that will take place later when the nation as a whole is converted to Christ. And that is the true Israel, those who are saved. Um, the true Israel under the historic premillennial view would be all those who are united to Christ, not really so much about the nation. And in fact, some um, more modern popular versions of this would simply say that Christ is the true Israel and that everyone who is in Christ is part of that. So all the stuff about promises to Israel and so on are sort of fulfilled in him, like his existence is the fulfillment and his coming is the fulfillment of these things and so to be united to him is to become part of israel that's the way that 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 is often being taught these days uh the true israel and these other views would represent uh the church or would be would be represented as the church so if you're going to say who is israel now or who is receiving these benefits and promises it would be the church so this is halfway through our chart here uh, any questions or contentions with some of uh of of how this is represented here maybe you think that this should be nuanced in any certain way to accurately represent uh, a viewpoint that you have interacted with what, what would you say any questions on any of this or comments yes so yes it is not a new view yeah, so the reason why I'm uh, splitting these up is because uh, the, there is such a, although there is a, I mean, there's something of a distinction, uh, I think, functionally in, in more modern post-millennialism from previous renditions of it. But um, it, it's not as maybe theologically distinct as, like the dispensational and historical premillennial view, kind of, those are actual labels, not so much like, so when I say historic pre, yeah, right, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because these are, this is not a new thing. Like post-millennialism and amillennialism, these are not like things that have just been come up with yesterday. So. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's not, it's not a view that, took, that was built within the last 1,000 years exclusively. So, yes, this, these have, uh, none of these really are new. There have been elements of all of them that have been around since the early centuries of the church. Now, as concerns um, sort of the codification of these systems and um, maybe being able to even put certain ones of them under the labels that they currently have, um, that is... For some of them, it's relatively new, um, and that's one of the, the I, I suppose, the um, attacks upon the view that I would hold, which would be a more dispensational premillennialism. Um, most of the elements of that were, um, are, are not new at all in terms of being taught early, early on in the church, but as far as like a system of that, I mean, you know, and, and uh, maybe in the last 400 years, the seeds of it uh, in terms of starting to systematize that and looking at, quote-unquote, dispensations 
uh, and eras in time in that way. Um, although that's not even really for most modern dispensationalists, it's not about the dispensation of this or Adam or the dispensation of this or the dis it's not so much about these time eras. It's more about uh, actually some of the stuff I'm about to mention, which is, is there a future for Israel? Does the millennium come after Christ returns and will Christ reign on the earth? Those are really the, the essential things of dispensationalism these days. Um, and so that is still being refined. And, and in fact, you know, there's no, these are so relatively new compared to other areas of theology in terms of codification that there is still quite a bit of like, you know, people were being refined by even debating with other views and, and trying to come and see, okay, what actually, what, what is the heart of our disagreement here? Um, but just to say, yeah, n none of this is really necessarily new, um, although the systems are somewhat new compared to other theological um, uh, areas uh, that, that were contested in the early parts of church history. So that's a long way of answering your question, I think. Does that, does that answer what you're... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, yes. Good. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, I, I do think that that is one of the strengths of the, uh, the dispensational premillennial position, which is a consistently applied, uh, hopefully <laughs> consistently applied, historical grammatical hermeneutic. So the approach to scripture which says, what did the text mean by the words that it said, the way they fit together in the time in which it was written, uh, what would have been understandable by the authors at that moment, what were they trying to convey in that moment. Um, now, there, there are some nuances to that, and uh, I think that the, the other views would would argue that they are using a consistent hermeneutic and they would argue that they're using a historical grammatical hermeneutic. Uh, I, I think that's not always the case and uh, I think that it is a matter of many cases of actually application and of, of giving certain texts priority over others that shouldn't be given that, misunderstandings of certain texts that are then read into other texts, like you get something wrong here and that's then the lens that you see all the rest of the texts of scripture through. Those of you familiar with, the, with these discussions understand that, uh, that they can take place and that it does maybe hinge on a few things like that. Um, but I, I do want to give credit and say, I, I think that generally, most evangelicals are trying on some level to apply those principles of historical grammatical, but they would also then, um, there, certain other views would, would say that there, that's not entirely the appropriate way to do that. There's maybe more of a redemptive historical approach, like what is actually, what is the big picture? What is God doing? They would see streams of like uh, typological types of things going through, like this word is used here in this place, and so it's used here and it's used here, so it must be in the author's mind. And some of that then they would say, um, 
determines the way that you interpret those words, those grammatical uh, things when you come to those passages. Now, I think that generally speaking, uh, the, the, the premillennial dispensational view is the only, I say the only one, it, it is, is the one that best uh, accounts for the very, the specific details of texts and allows them all to speak for themselves. And uh, I think that in particular, the amillennial view has a weakness on that point where it does not allow the details of the text to speak for themselves, and it has to say that they don't really mean what they seem to pretty obviously in front of you mean, and you have to rely upon, well, another passage of Scripture says this, so all that's here in this huge section can't really mean what you're seeing right before your eyes. Uh, So I do think that it has that strength of being consistently applied and being able to handle dealing with the details of the text. But, but just to say, like, I, I agree with you in general, and I think that actually is a really important point because it is largely a hermeneutical thing. I just do want to make sure that I'm, you know, giving at least somewhat proper credit to the people who are, they're trying to apply a consistent hermeneutic, and they would say that they employ the historical grammatical uh, method in uh, where, it, where they would see it as appropriate. So, uh, but it is, it is largely, yes, yeah, it's, it's, hermeneutics is, is a lot of this. Like, do you go to the Bible and say, does this, is this text understandable? Was it meant to be understood? Uh, were the authors who wrote this, were they supposed to understand this? Or was this just kind of able to be changed, um, reinterpreted in some ways? Maybe some views, um, I again would say in particular the amillennial view, uh, has that tendency to say, well, what they said was this, but what really was intended was actually not that and something additional to be revealed later on using that, but actually something altogether different was intended by that text in the first place. And just the author didn't know it and thought it was something else, but as it turns out, it's something different. So I I don't think that that does justice to the authorial intent of Scripture and uh, a sound way of approaching it hermeneutically. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, What else? Yeah, Patrick. I would. I would challenge that on a lot of levels. Um, One is that disagreement doesn't necessarily mean there's not a right view. So we have the same thing when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, lots of different views. We have the same thing when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, lots of different views. But um, although the ramifications there are perhaps more directly impactful when it comes to who you understand Christ to be, um, the same basic logic applies just because there's not one obvious view that everybody agrees on doesn't mean that you shouldn't get down to the nitty-gritty of it. So that's one thing. Um, I would, I've heard that, well, this is not really, a, this is not a salvation issue. So why are we spending so much time worried about it? To which I would reply that it, um, it's not 
directly a salvation issue for most people, but it can be a salvation issue in a lot of different ways. First of all, because all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And 2 Timothy 3 tells us that, which means that uh, the passages, including eschatology passages, are part of what God uses to make us godlier. And when the church is not as godly as it should be, its witness is not as godly as it should be and not as powerful as it should be, and it can have ripple effects on our evangelistic ability. So, yeah, I think that if we misunderstand eschatology, then we are opening ourselves up a little bit to, well, we're not quite the kind of Christian people that we ought to be, and that might be a, a good commending testimony to the watching world. Uh, even more directly with regard to that, you have... One book in the Bible, for example, that was meant to answer this type of question, which is not just is Jesus the Messiah, but okay, you're saying he's the Messiah. Where is the kingdom that the Messiah is supposed to bring? And this is written in large part to Jews to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah, despite the fact that you're looking and your eyes before you are telling you there's no kingdom as we promised in the Old Testament that's here in front of you right now. So is Jesus really the Messiah? Well, it's pretty important that you be able to show, well, yes, he is, but here's why the kingdom is not here at this moment. So if you miss that, then you're going to try to evangelize somebody who's a Jewish person and say, well, actually, all those things that you were told in the Old Testament, well, that's not really the case. Now, some might buy it anyway, but not everybody's going to buy that, and I understand why they wouldn't. If you say, well, all this stuff was promised, but Jesus is the fulfillment of his promises, but actually, it's all kind of different than what you expected, uh, that would be a harder sell, and I think rightly so. So that would be another reason. Um, also, the, just the fact that it is all over the Bible. We, whatever we come to in the scripture, you know, we, we, uh, we want to uh, understand what's there. And the things that were written in the past, we learn in Romans 15, were written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Um, you know, we, we also can fall into the danger of, of uh, deciding that because something is difficult to understand, then it just must not be that important. Like, if there are a lot of views, then it must not be that important. Um, so that's a problem as well. I think people are intimidated by eschatology because it is a really, really big doctrine. And because it doesn't, we don't, it's not obvious on the surface how it impacts our lives. So part of what I want to do this morning is to help you to see how it does have some ramifications for the way that we interact with the world. But it's kind of like, well, it's hard and it's complicated, and it's not really directly impacting me today. So why do I really want to deal with this? It's almost like, like you know, setting up a, like a complex family trust or something. Like, well, it's not really, like, are we all going to die tomorrow, you know? And it's like, it's kind of hard. It's a lot involved. So do I really want to deal with this right now? Um, and then you just, you know, push it off down the road. Like, this is, this is the kind of thing where there's so much that is here. There's so many issues. It can be overwhelming and then you say, well, all these godly people that I follow, you know, this guy that I read and this guy that I heard and this guy, they all have different views. So maybe it really isn't possible to get a right position on this. I would say that the disagreement that comes on that is in large part due to uh, at least a couple of things. One is the fact that there are so many different pieces involved in eschatology. And then also the fact that people generally commit to a theological position and then just hunker down and try to defend it based upon the tradition that they're in or what their position was when they established it early on. 
And so there's really not, like once you come in through a certain angle on this, like your hermeneutical approach to eschatology is this is the way to interpret these passages. It's really hard to be convinced otherwise because you're going to come at every passage from the view you already hold. And it takes a lot of humility to, to change that. And in fact, sometimes it takes, like if you're teaching it, if you're in a, a pastoral position or if you're in a, a teaching, like a, an academic position somewhere, uh, you actually, you can't change that view without actually having to change denominations or something. So there's a lot of cost involved in changing that too. Um, so there's, anyway, there's a lot of reasons why people might not do that. But it is, um, it is a big, big old thing to study. Like it's a lot of information to take in. There's a lot of factors involved. So it can be intimidating and it can take years and years and years and years to really formulate uh, like a, a coherent view uh, that, that addresses all of the things that you might uh, encounter. There are other issues involved, which is that um, some of the passages, like each, each position that's mentioned here has passages where at first glance it's like, oh, you know, I think they're right. <laughs> like, like if that's true, like that looks like, oh, you know, actually I think that's, I think that's the correct view. And so you say, what do we do with these apparent, like this one seems to, to argue for this one and this one for this one. And you have to sort through each individual thing to be able to come to, uh, to a consistent conclusion as well. Anyway, there's a lot there. So, Patrick, did I give you a, a few answers for, as to why I think it's, why it's important? Yeah, yeah, it's really important, but it's, it's a lot. So I understand why people are hesitant to wade in. But I think it, the best way, honestly, I think the best way to do it, just read through the scriptures, be familiar with the scriptures, know what they say, and... Uh, you know, as you are able to to read works on these things and to listen to teaching on these things, then then great. Um, I would say if you if you're just new to it, just like take your time and actually kind of pulling these things together. Be measured in how you do this, and then just let the scriptures speak for themselves and go from there. Um, okay, good. Other questions, comments before we move on? No. Okay. So those are the first four. Um, when we then think about this next question, is Christ's reign as the Messiah happening now? Is it happening now? And uh, there are a lot of nuances to some of these views. I, I hesitated to even summarize the uh, dispensational premillennial position. But the, the question is, is Christ reigning on the throne? Is he reigning over all the nations, over all creation? Is he reigning on the throne of David? Those are all somewhat different questions depending upon who you ask. Some people might say, well, they're just all the same question. I don't think that they are all the same question. But uh, is Christ reigning right now and how? So the dispensational view would say Christ is reigning in that he is exalted to the right hand of God. Uh, Acts 2 says this very clearly. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, they would say that he has been, been made head over all things, according to Ephesians 1. But is he reigning in the way that the Old Testament promised? They would say no. And in fact, some, like myself, would say that he is not even technically reigning on David's throne right now, that David's throne is reserved for the time when he is actually reigning over Israel on the earth. But that is sort of an intramural debate even among dispensationalists. Um, so is Christ reigning fully in all the ways that were promised or is he reigning over all things and is he doing so according to the promises to that the Messiah would reign as um, 
they would say not necessarily all of those things. Historic premillennialism would say, yes, basically he is reigning in those ways, but it's not fully realized because he's still going to come to the earth and reign during those 1,000 years. Um, amillennialism, yes, he is reigning. He is reigning over his church from heaven. He is reigning over all things. Um, he's going to come and he's going to reign, of course, when the new heavens and new earth come. But he is basically reigning now. And then um, postmillennialism, uh, not exactly in the same way as amillennialism, but he is head over all things. He is exalted to the right hand of God. He is, uh, they would say, over the throne of, on the throne of David. He is ruling over the nations. And uh, therefore, uh, there is a degree of authority that he has and that Christians uh, can sort of understand and should understand that he has over everything upon the earth, that he is Lord over all, that the lordship of Christ is, uh, is a, a big factor and should be a big factor in our lives, that he is Lord over everything. So that is the, uh, the question of, is he reigning as the Messiah? Is this happening now? Um, another question, two more. This one is, will there be a period of earthly restoration before the final judgment? Will there be a period of earthly restoration before the final judgment? Meaning, um, when Christ comes, is that just, that's it. He judges and we go into the eternal state. Or is there some period after that? And of course, this is connected to when the millennium will take place. But um, yes, the, the dispensational premillennialist would say, yes, there will be a period of earthly restoration when Christ returns. So Christ is going to come back, but that's not just entering into the eternal state. There will be a period where... Uh, on the earth for a thousand years there will be uh, Christ reigning and not everything will be perfect yet but it will be fundamentally different he will reign righteousness will rule he will rule over the nations and as uh, Isaiah 2 says he'll rule them with a rod of iron uh, excuse me that's not Isaiah 2 but it is somewhere um, and then after Christ's return um, same thing historic premillennialists uh, the amillennial view would say no this is it like we're there's nothing this is just the world we live in and then Christ is going to come and he's kind of just, boom, going to change everything into the world that we will always be in. And that's it. It's now and then. And they will, uh, you know, kind of take passages like when Jesus says either now or in the age to come. And say, aha, like there's two ages. That's it. And that's it's just now and then. And there's nothing in between. I think that's an oversimplified interpretation of that passage that is then read into all the other details of Scripture. But nonetheless, that's the view. For the amillennialist who says uh, who says that, and then the um, postmillennialists, and this is one of the things that, though I disagree with the view, that I appreciate that I think that they get right. They recognize the importance of earthly restoration, that the earth matters, and would say yes, there will be a period of earthly restoration, and that this is building, it's gradual. That that Christians and Christianity uh, are are kind of taking over going to build this uh build into this before christ's return and then it's not just something that awaits that afterward but it's actually they would say um that's something that we that is happening it's happening now it's on the way it's it's building and and christ and christians are to be involved in this process um again that's not exactly uh some of you may nuance that language but the idea is that it is not to wait until christ's return in their view but it is going to happen before the eternal state it's not just to come and everything is switched at that time but that there is an earthly restoration that is happening um, and then what is the basic form of the kingdom that is now present the basic form of the kingdom that is now present so the dispensational slash 
uh, or dispensational premillennial position would say that the kingdom is basically postponed in that uh, it, or it is yet to come. So the Old Testament promises um, generally dispensationalists would say when Christ came, he offered the kingdom to Israel and that uh, they rejected it and they rejected him. And so it's not coming in the way that it was promised in the Old Testament yet, not yet. Now, there are many more things that are going on in the meantime, uh, including, they would say, kingdom citizens in the church. So Philippians chapter 3 talks about our citizenship is in heaven. Colossians 1 talks about uh, being transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, things like that. So it's not as if there's no kingdom activity. But in terms of the Old Testament kingdom promises, the, the, uh, the, the view is that basically the kingdom is future. Uh, there's a little bit more of a spiritually present kingdom now under the historic premillennial view, but it is not the full fullness of the kingdom and that that physical kingdom is still yet to come at Christ's return would be the historic premillennial view, uh, but a little bit more of a spiritual reality. Uh, the amillennial view is in essence that the church is the kingdom is the fulfillment of the kingdom so the kingdom of god right now is like we're we're sitting in it like it, it is the church um and that there is an already nature to this kingdom the, and like it's already here but it's not yet here in that it's got to be fulfilled in its complete fullness when jesus comes and makes all things new and then the post-millennial view would would uh, include the kingdom gradually and inevitably advancing through the church in the world. The influence of the church and Christians, uh, the proclamation of the gospel, which will then lead toward uh, more and more of the world being under the functional reign of Jesus Christ until such time then as he would return. So these are, uh, these are the other questions here. So Questions on these, other comments on these, ways that you think that these should be nuanced or clarified. Anything that you have on these before we talk about this a little bit? Yes, Jim. On Antichrist, uh, it's going to vary. Some, there might be a literal Antichrist. For some, there might not be a literal Antichrist. For others, like maybe it's just the spirit of Antichrist. They would go to like uh, First John who talked about the spirit of Antichrist. And so it may be a real person. It may not under that view. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't really feel a high degree of expertise in knowing about uh, post-millennial views on, uh, on Antichrist. So uh, I couldn't say anything other than just there would be at least some who would say that there might not be a literal guy. And beyond that, um, beyond that, I'd have to look into it more. Yeah. Okay, good. Other questions, comments on this? Yeah, so that kind of thing, yes, where there could have been a, already a historical fulfillment of, uh, of some of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yes. Yes, I agree. There, there are some sort of uh, watershed or linchpin passages to uh, in, um, yeah, probably each one of these, each one of these views, uh, things that are like the battleground that if you, if you grant a certain view on these, then, uh, then you're going to end up in a certain place. So like, for example, I mentioned the, the age to either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, well, if you're going to go to that passage and say that is now a controlling hermeneutical reality, that as I interpret scripture, anything about the future has to be understood through this lens, that there is an age now and there's an age to come, and that's all there is, now and future. Then, from the, then that will lead you to an amillennialism viewpoint because you're going to say there is no intermediate kingdom between now and the eternal state. There's no 1,000 years in between like it, it's because that's an additional age. Now, I have reasons why I would think that that's not actually what that passage is talking about. There, um, even in itself that I think that's being misinterpreted, but that would be, that would be one. Uh, another Another place where that uh, some of these some of these fundamental things might come up would be like in Galatians six sixteen where it says peace be upon those who walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God and that version or that that phrase the Israel of God is there's kind of two things that people do with that to uh, make make an equation of the church with Israel, like they're the same thing. And it's, uh, it's taking the word and, which is a Greek word chi, and it can be translated as even, like explicatory um, or exegetical of the thing that came before. And it can be used in that way, like it could be peace be upon them, even upon the Israel of God, like them is the same thing, even upon them. Uh, that is certainly not the most common way of using that. And I think that it is really a conclusion in need of a way of proving it in that verse. So I don't agree with that at all. Um, also, it just takes a phrase, the Israel of God, and assumes what it means in bringing that into, uh, into the picture there. So, but there, people will go to that and say, well, yes, um, the people who walk by this rule, the people who are following Christ faithfully, uh, the Christians, in other words, are the same thing as the Israel of God. And in fact, I read a whole book literally called that, The Israel of God, that tries to make the case that the church equals Israel. And it, it's, that's one of the key passages where it goes to for that. So that's just an example. Like on the amillennial side, it's the, there are places like that uh, where you have certain, yeah, certain, certain main battlegrounds, if you will. Um, uh, uh, maybe one that would be, that is a, a commonly um, noted place on the, like the post-millennial position would be in Matthew 18 where he says make disciples of all the nations. They would make the argument that it's not you're making disciples out of the nations, but that you're making the nations, you're discipling the nations like themselves. Um, not to the neglect of individuals, but that it isn't just individuals that fall under the purview of the command to make disciples, but it actually is the whole, the nations themselves. Now again, uh, I, I would argue against that. I don't think that is... I don't think that's correct, but that's part of, like, just to make the point, there are certain passages where, like, the, the argument hinges. So when you go that, you're like, well, they say this about this text, and they say this about this text, and that's why. Uh, that, that would be an example of one of those as well. So yeah, they do exist. They do exist like that. Um, and I could go through other ones, but um, hopefully that gives you kind of an idea of what, what kinds of things are there.
And, and if it seems profitable, they'll kind of walk through all those things, whether now or in another you know, separate kind of more widespread eschatological study, then uh, they'd be glad to do that. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with the post-millennial position on that, um, but yeah, with I think it's a big problem for the, the all-male view. Like it's uh, somebody, I think humorously, but nonetheless, I think accurately once said, if Satan is bound, somebody keeps letting him out. Like I, I think that it's he is no longer able to deceive the nations. It doesn't really seem to describe what's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to equate that with First um, Peter 5 and your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I, just, I can't jive those two things. I, I have a really hard time with that. Yeah, and there are other issues in that passage too. I mean, just walking through Revelation 20, um, the way that the amillennial view would have to make one resurrection spiritual and the other physical right back to back in the same context. Um, why is there such a big deal made about a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, if it's not actually a thousand years? It's just repeated over and over again. Uh, th there's things like that. But yeah, it does raise, I mean, there are a lot of questions. I, I'm, I'm sure that you're walking out of here with more questions than you came in with for most of you looking at some of these things. Because it does. It, it just goes in. The tentacles of, of eschatology get into everything. They're, they're so connected. And again, this is why it can be intimidating. But I think it's just something you have to have patience with. And as you go through the scriptures and study them, you'll start to have a coherent view of this. If you just take each passage at face value and then you, you pull them all together in a coherent way. And then you deal with problems as you come. Brian, did you have something? Yeah, I have found him to be the, the, most, um, the most helpful guy and really just, I mean, just addresses all kinds of questions on these things. So the YouTube channel, yeah, if you, if you didn't catch that or um, the spelling. So it's a former professor of mine, actually, but um, Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H. And if you want, to, he, he is, um, he argues for the, um, actually, probably the leading proponent of um, dispensationalism at this point at this point in time in terms of just how much material and things like that he's putting out. But he has a YouTube channel that uh, where he answers, just goes through a lot of these questions and addresses those things. So yeah, I would, I would commend that to you for sure, Brian. I thank you for the recommendation on that. The, uh, again, V-L-A-C-H. So if you, if you want some like, again, because it's such a big issue, uh, because there's so many pieces involved, uh, and he's helpful in just walking through these things. Like when, like for example, just to give you an example of one of the things that's involved in this. When the Bible talks about the seed of Abraham, okay, what is it referring to? Well, you read one passage and it says this, and one passage it says that, and one passage it says that. And uh, when you kind of get into it, you're going, well, it seems like it's being used differently in different places. Well, it is. It is. And so he's got a video, for example, uh, Mike Vlock does, about 
the various forms of, like the various uses of the seed of Abraham in Scripture. How they're being used. What are the angles and why are they being used in this passage in that way? So that would be a good example of looking up something like that where you can go and you can say, okay, here's this whole issue that if I just kind of was walking into this and I heard this position talking about the seed of Abraham in Galatians 3 and this person talking about it in Genesis 12 and this person talking about it here uh, in Romans 9, like I would be so confused. But if you if you can pull those together and sort those out. So he does a really good job of that. If you want to, if you want to look more into just very specific things like that, uh, it, would be, it would be worth your time for sure. So these are, uh, these are basically the main uh, positions. Again, there are others, but these are the ones that you're going to run into often. And hopefully this gives you a little bit of an understanding at least of what these, what, what these views think about what is happening now, what's the state of the kingdom, is Christ reigning, um, is there going to be a time in the future where a lot of the things the Bible talks about, hap, uh, where they happen then, or are they kind of happening now, and is that the fulfillment? And hopefully as you hear these things, um, and this is be what I'll finish with, is that you can start to see how, and we'll come back to this next time and think about some of the ramifications of all of this, but you can start to see how these, having one or the other of these views impacts the way that you interact with the world, the way that you think about what the Christian's influence should be, what the target should be, and how we should be interacting with, uh, with those in authority over us or uh, with the culture around us. So these are all going to have different implications that come from this. And so I wanted to just uh, address this underlying thing and just to say that this is, this is why you're going to run into people who have different approaches to this. Um, on many occasions is driven by this. So these are the, these are the views, and then uh, we can come back next time and we can start to walk through um, what, what are the outflows of this. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray and close, and then if you have any questions for me, I'm glad to talk afterward. God, thank you for this time today. Um, we do thank you that, that this is, uh, uh, though this is a large, large issue, that your word tells us what we need to know and that we can go as far as you've told us that we need to go no further to live a life that pleases you but we thank you that there is so much and that we can take and find hope in it um, but we do pray for your help because it is a lot to cover and it is a lot to study and it's a lot to understand uh, we're capable of it by your grace but we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we do it we pray that you would help us to have the patience and the, the uh, to understand things rightly from your word we ask that you would help us to see the importance of everything you've said and put it in right proportion we pray that you'd help us as we go to have sweet fellowship here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.